online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. A view from the vineyard with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines. Because life's too short for boring wine. I think it's it's a very creative process. And you know, at the end of a vintage, when your last grape is in, we always have a big celebration because it really is the, the whole culmination of the year's work. And you've managed to pick your grapes and you've managed to produce ripe, delicious grapes. Even though we've had frost, we may get hail, we may have had uh, a heat wave, we may have had uh, no water, but we've done it, you know, we've succeeded and the grapes are all in. And Nothing nature now can throw at us, will harm us. Here at Virgin Wines, we believe that life's too short for boring wine, which is why we search the world for the most exciting independent winemakers and use thousands of our customer ratings to shape our range of premium quality exclusive wines. Head to virginwines.co.uk and start your wine journey with us today. Handpicked by us, loved by you. Today on Food FM, I'm excited to be joined by Nicola Allison, owner and winemaker at Chateau de Say in Bordeaux. Interestingly, Nicola is not French and she hasn't always worked in wine. Nicola was born in Wales and is a qualified doctor. She moved to New Zealand in the 90s where she met her husband, Sean, and they decided to return to Europe in 2001 with their children to take over Nicola's parents' winery. Today, Nicola and Sean are involved in every aspect of the winery, from taking care of the vineyards to making the wines and the business side of the operation. I'm really looking forward to chatting to Nicola all about what it was like taking over the winery, moving to France, how she found converting to organic farming and her experience working in such a historic wine region. Welcome, Nicola. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you very much for inviting me. The first thing I really want to dive into is to find out a little bit more about your move from New Zealand to France to take over the winery. What inspired the move and how it all kind of came about? Mm. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. I did come from New Zealand, but originally um, my origins are Welsh. So my parents moved from South Wales to Serrans, which is where our winery is, in the mid-80s. And they had this dream of buying a vineyard, making wine, sitting on the terrace, drinking your own produce. And they followed their dream. Um, I was still in university at that stage in Cardiff. And in 1989, um, I actually moved to New Zealand. I'm a doctor by training. And after doing my internships in in the UK, decided to do a bit of traveling and ended up in New Zealand, which is where I lived and worked as a GP for about 12 years. And my husband's a, a Kiwi or a New Zealander, Sean. And in about the year 2000, mum and dad said to us, look, you know, we've, we've done our bit. We're keen to have a quieter life now. So we're thinking of selling unless you and Sean are interested in taking over. And we didn't think too much about it, to be honest. Um, I was busy being the GP and Sean had a, a very busy job that took him traveling pretty much all around the world. And we had two, two kids at that stage, very young. And basically they never saw their dad. So apart from our, our love of wine, we also thought, well, it would be a, a great lifestyle change for us. 
And if it doesn't work out, you know, after two years, we can always come back to our original careers. And here we are, sort of 21 years later, still here. That is amazing. So it sounds like quite a spontaneous decision, really. Uh it was it was a spontaneous decision, although we did have about 18 months to prepare for it. So during that time, um, I did a course in enology and viticulture at um, the Hawke's Bay College, which was affiliated to um, the, the school in, in Adelaide. And just so that I knew a little bit of theory to, behind it. But to be honest, the science side was pretty familiar because of my medical studies and so much of making wine and viticulture is is experience and it was very much learning on the job when we arrived. That's so interesting. And for anyone listening in, um, Hawke's Bay in New Zealand is a very famous wine region um, in its own right. And there are certain parts of New Zealand as well that are meant to have some similarities um, to Bordeaux in terms of the, the exactly. climate um, and, and, and the in, weather. In, so- in fact, Hawke's Bay is that region. So their specialities are Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. And I believe that the the latitude is is very similar to France as well, or to Bordeaux, actually. Exactly. So you studied in Hawke's Bay, got all prepared, and then the two of you and your children headed to France. Um, I'm really interested to hear about what it was like adapting to the French way of life. I think I've read that you speak French, but your mm. husband didn't. Didn't, not um, at all. What was it like <laughs> with, the, with, the, with the language barrier and also sort of adapting culturally to the, to the French way of life? Yeah, I think our experiences were quite different, Sean and myself. I did speak French and my godparents uh, were French and I spent all my summers with them, um, actually the other side of France near Pépignon. So it was, it was very familiar to me, whereas um, Sean, New Zealand, is, is as, as you know, a long way away from Europe. So I hadn't really experienced the same things that I, as I had growing up. Also, coming from an investment banking background, uh, suddenly to be thrown in rural France uh, was, was a huge cultural difference. I think if he'd been thrown into rural New Zealand, some, the same cultural differences would have been there. And naivety is, is great though, isn't it? Because sometimes when you launch into things and you're not aware of what's going on around you, that's probably a, a plus. Um, so we had a few laughs the first year. Uh, well, we've had a few laughs over 21 years, but certainly the first couple of years were, were a steep learning curve. To be honest though, the hardest ad- adaptation that we had was actually living and working together 24 hours a day um we haven't that done that have been at a all. very big difference it was and i suspect a lot of people have experienced similar things in the last 18 months with lockdown but we went from leading totally different professional lives and sean traveling a lot to suddenly being involved in business and 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that took a, a lot for us both to adapt to, yeah. And how did your children find the move? Were they? Did you say they were quite young when you moved over? They were. Uh, we've got three boys. The youngest, Louis, was born in France, but the oldest two, Luca and JJ. Luca was three and JJ was 18 months. 
JJ was absolutely fine. It was a struggle, to be honest. Um, everyone said to us, our oh, kids adapt really easily and don't worry. But I think for Luca, who had gone from uh, a very secure environment where all his friends were my, our friends' kids, to suddenly being thrown into a, a little nursery school where the kids had never even seen a foreigner before and he couldn't communicate, it was tough on him. It was tough. Um, it probably yeah, took him a year. Yeah, must have been very challenging. Yeah, it took him a year, I think, to to understand and to start to speak French. Um, and that wasn't something that we had prepared for because everyone said to us, your kids will find it really easy. Um, so if anyone says to me, what do you think about moving? I said, fantastic, do it. But just be aware that it's quite a, a challenging time for your kids initially. The kids went through completely the French system and completely bilingual and it's, it's been fantastic for them. But it was challenging in the, in the first 12 months. I can imagine. And, and are they identifying as a French or, or Welsh <laughs> or, or Kiwi? <laughs> well... I'm not going to go into politics, but Brexit certainly has made it difficult for uh, the older two kids, although I've grown up here, uh, went to study overseas, and now, unfortunately, uh, have lost all their, their rights to, to be in France. I think they identify very much as European and then wherever they happen to be as their home and their home is here. We're all, we're a big rugby family and all the boys uh, play rugby. So in terms of identification, I suspect they probably identify with the All Blacks. So does that answer your question? <laughs> very good, very good. <laughs> Back to the winery. I'm yeah. keen to hear a bit about the first year and your first yeah. harvest. Is yeah. that quite uh, memorable for you? Do you remember sort of any particularly challenging parts of that first harvest? Yeah, it's it's very memorable because, as I alluded to before, um, naive, naivety and, and innocence takes you a long way, doesn't it? We 2001 was our first harvest and it was a very nice uh, year uh, for us to have um, the first production. We had uh, an Australian winemaker called Chris from um, the Hunter Valley come to help us, which was fantastic. We had lots of late nights, I remember that. Lots of late nights in the winery and then lots of late nights continuing afterwards with beers around the, te around the barbecue table. To be honest, the, the, most, the memory that stands out the most is Chris running into the winery and said, you, you've got to come and watch this because, of course, it was 9-11. And we went oh from goodness. bringing in grapes to suddenly just watching on, on the television the horrific events that unfolded. And that, that really is, is my most vivid memory of, of our first year, um, the surreal of being in rural France picking grapes while planes were causing complete devastation in, in New York. So, yeah. Of course, yes. So it was, um, yeah, in September, which is when you're in, in full harvest time. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. We were, um, it was early September, September the 9th, so we would have been bringing in the white grapes. 
And we would have started very early because we, we do that to avoid the heats of the day. So talking a bit more now about the wines you produce, um, mm-hmm. you have a red, um, a white, a rosé and a sweet wine. Um, yes. I have to say, I absolutely love the sweet wines from Bordeaux. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me um, briefly a little bit more about each of the wines you produce. Give us sort of a, a guide to the, the flavour profile um, of each of them. Sure. So so we're in the, the Grave area of Bordeaux, which for your listeners is on the left bank. Very briefly, Bordeaux is divided into left bank and right bank. And the left bank, we have the Medoc and Grave. And our terroir is very similar to the Medoc in that we're on the base of, of the riverbed that would have completely covered this area a um, million, uh, million years ago. So our terroir is, is gravel, it's limestone um, and some clay. And this really shows in our wines. Uh, our red wines, the Grave Red, uh, have very soft, supple tannins. So for your listeners who don't understand about tannins, they give the structure of the wine. Um, And what we're looking for, because I know when I sell a bottle of wine, 90% uh, of consumers will drink it within 24 hours. So it's important that we make wines that are structured, but nevertheless, people enjoy drinking. And, And that's what's important is that the tannins, although they give structure, they're soft and they're supple. It doesn't feel like you're you're chewing off stick. The other thing that's, that's quite prominent in our wines is the fruit. So it's for me, I, I like our wines to have the style of, of blackberries or red currants on the nose. So when people first take an aroma of our wines, they think, oh gosh, they have memories of, of the berries that they've eaten. The red wines that we make are generally made to be food matching. Um, in fact, a lot of wines from Bordeaux are complement all sorts of food. We do make wines that are made to be drunk with food. Then the Grave white wine is a blend of Sauvignon Blanc and Semignon. And, and I forgot to say that the majority of Bordeaux wines are blended. And what we're looking for in our white wines, we're looking for the zestiness and the, of Sauvignon Blanc that perhaps your listeners would associate more with New World wines, but backed up with the mouthfeel and the depth of Semignon. And each year we do a blending so that we get a, a marriage of, of the two great varietals. The Semillon is vinified in French oak, but we don't use new French oak. So neither for the red or the white, I don't want oak to be dominant in the wine. I want the actual uh, wine to tell the story. And if it's good, why hide it with oak? Then um, the rosé is a very uh, light colour with raspberry on the nose, raspberry and strawberry. This is one of my favourite drinks in the summer, and I would drink it as an aperitif, but also also very much like it with Asian or spicy food. And then last but not least is our sweet wine, which is Serrance. So our chateau is in the village of Serrance. And Serrance is the, I believe, the smallest appellation in Bordeaux. I think there are about 12 uh, producers at the moment. And our Serrance is 100% Semillon. And it's the Botrytis wine or the Noble Rot. So we start to pick this uh, normally around late September, going through often to late October, early November. And the grapes are naturally dried out 
with the, the fungus or the botrytis and then the wind and the sun. So what we press is a very concentrated grape juice. So the, the sweet, the sweetness or the sugar there is totally natural. We don't add sugar at all. So that's a, a sort of a summary of the variety of the, the types of wine that we make. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. A view from the vineyard with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines. Because life's too short for boring wine. What a lovely range of different types of wine as well. I can see there's yes. definitely one for a different moment, a different occasion. And um, yes. you touched on briefly what you like to pair with your rosé wines in terms mm. of food. Um, mm. I'm, I'm really quite into food and wine pairing. So it's, it's something that, um, yes. yeah, I feel quite passionately about not being kind of overly prescriptive, but giving people no. an opportunity to have um, a think about the sorts of foods or occasions to, to have their wines. Could yes. you tell me for your wines what your mm. sort of favourite food pairing is for each of them? Sure. I think what you said is exactly right. I think most people who are passionate about wine tend to also be passionate about food. But very important, if you like to have your red with sole or another sort of fish, fantastic. That's how you should drink it. There are no rules, really. But for me personally, um, our red wines, one, I'm not vegetarian, so there's just a, a notice if anyone is vegetarian. But from our red wines, my favorite would be, um, we're in the southwest of France, which is the, the cradle of, um, of duck production. So here you can buy these massive duck breasts. So I marinate that over 24 hours with hoisin sauce that you, we buy from the, the Asian supply store in Bordeaux. And it's the sauce that, um, that Chinese cuisine use for their lacquer duck. So we marinate that in hoisin sauce over 24 hours. And then we've got a big old chim chimney in the garden that we use for our barbecue. So we get the sarmon, which are the, the vine cuttings fire it up and then grill the the magret de canard or the duck breast on there and the smokiness from the barbecue and the the the, the sweetness from the hoisin sauce and you slice the duck very finely and that with a, a glass of chateau du grave red is absolutely delicious um so that would be my red match the white match i'm, I'm salivating I'm, are you good <laughs> well if you ever come and visit i'll do that for you the, the white i'm i'm gonna go a little bit off offbeat and not say the classical seafood match for me it would have to be goat's cheese um and here again you can get goat's cheese that's very fresh so it's very soft it's not the hard age goat's cheese and to have that just on um, a slice of sourdough with the Chateau du Say Graf White probably would be my favourite. Rosé, I match it with anything, to be honest. But if I was cooking um, spicy Asian food, curries, uh, Thai food, I, I would match our rosé. It's dry. There's, there's no residual sugar in our rosé. But just with the lovely acidity and the fruit flavours, I find that, that the marriage is, is perfect. And finally, with the sarongs, the dessert wine, um, in, in this part of the world, if you were invited to a, a viticulture's house who made the sweet wine, you would probably have that with uh, foie gras. Um, as an aperitif at the start. Uh, here, my favorite match, without doubt, again, going to cheese would be a Roquefort cheese, which is a, a, a blue cheese, similar to Stilton in a way, 
So in the UK, I would probably match that with with something like Stilton. I think anyone listening in is probably hoping one day to get an, an invite round to dinner at yours. Because those <laughs> sound like wonderful pairings. Um, in particular, the the white wine pairing. Um, mm-hmm. So the 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 blend of um, Sauvignon and Semillon with the, with the yeah. cheese. Yeah. That's that's a lovely pairing. I think people often don't think about pairing white mm. wine with cheese. And mm. actually, it was in Bordeaux when I first visited, I'd say about seven or seven years ago, where I first um, was shown this as a sort of oh, great pairing, white wine with, with cheese. And in particular, as you say, with the Sauvignon having that sort of zestiness, um, mm. bringing, you know, cutting cutting through the cheese, um, yes. but also with the, the Sauvignon, I, I love those sort of slightly grassy notes. And I think with some of the yes. cheese, they have that slightly herbaceous, grassy quality. So they yes, all just seem indeed. to marry, marry well, yes, uh, marry very well together. Indeed, indeed, absolutely. Back to the, the Chateau, I wanted to ask a bit more about the conversion to turning the, the Chateau organic. I know that this is starting to be a bit more of a, a move in Bordeaux, but it's quite yes. a complicated process converting to organic farming. Um, yeah. I'd like to ask you a bit more about how you did this, if there's a lot of, sort of bureaucracy involved <laughs> and um, why it was important to you to to convert to organic farming. Yes, well, uh, I'll answer the second bit of your question first. Of course, there was bureaucracy involved. We do live in France. But why did we do it? Because I think um, with a medical background and our chateau is bang in the middle of, of our vineyards, uh, I was really unhappy about bringing up children and ourselves living amongst chemicals, which back in the day were actually carcinogenic. You also, I felt, had responsibility to your employees who were dealing with these chemicals when they were having to treat. And although, of course, everyone has protection and masks and and gloves, you're sort of thinking, well, you know, that, that really can't be great. So that was one one of the reasons. The second reason was in terms of the environment. Um, I was very aware that chemicals that are used in agriculture can infiltrate the uh, the water tables. They can infiltrate the other forms of trees, etc., growing around the vineyards, and of course have a huge impact on the life the wildlife in the vineyard, in particular uh, the insects and bees being the one that everyone's talking about at the moment. So so there were many reasons really why I felt there was an argument to go organic. Um, We officially started in 2009, but when we moved here, we stopped using what you know as Roundup in 2004. So we made a, a gradual transition into organics and then really said, okay, let, let's go the whole way in 2009. So that that's why we did it. Was it difficult? Look, I think anything that you do well has challenges, doesn't it? I'm sure in, in your business, um, when you do something well, uh, you have to work hard to achieve good results. And it's the same in organics. It's the same in, in any form of agriculture, really. Probably the hardest thing when we started was there were not many people that did it. So before we started, I visited a few vineyards who'd been doing it for a long time. I mean, there are some vineyards that have been doing it for 30, 40 years, which is amazing, to try and understand what was 
is the best way to to run this. And then um, it's it's trial and error. You know, you know what you can do, you know what you can't do. If anyone listening is a gardener, it's really trying to to learn piece by piece what is best for your vineyard. Um, and still, twenty how many years now? Uh, Twelve years, I think. Uh, you know, we're still thinking, oh, yeah, well, maybe we shouldn't do that in this vineyard. Maybe we should do this. So it's very much um, looking at your vineyard, seeing what what is best for each parcel and then and then taking action. It's interesting that you say that your background as a doc- doctor influenced um, this decision as well to to move to organic farming. I was wondering mm. if um, anything else in the winery has been influenced by your medical background. Oh, that's an interesting question. I think probably actually in the winery, I'm very aware of hygiene, uh, which is very, very important in medicine, of course. Uh, But when you're making wine, it's also very important because you don't want contamination from bacteria, and the classic one would be Brettanomyces or any Great other... Great pronunciation any, there. <laughs> or any other yeasts, perhaps, that give off flavours. And that's, that hygiene is very important. If you don't clean your pumps correctly or if you don't clean your your hoses correctly, then the bad organisms are going to be dormant. And as soon as they get uh, wine and sugar, say yippity-doo and, and contaminate your wine. So, yeah, that, that would be the first thing. The whole microbiological side was, I wouldn't say easy, but very familiar to me in the winery. So I didn't have to think really too much about. Uh, yes, the second thing would be when you're working as a doctor and, and you're giving medicines to people, you, of course, have to be so diligent about the correct dosing. And in the winery, the same thing. Uh, you have to be very correct about if you're using yeast, the right de- the, the the correct de- you dear the correct yeast dosage. That's a tongue twister. Um, <laughs> and then if you're adding sulfur to your wines, you you get a decimal point wrong, and and that's a disaster. So being very meticulous about that, I think, is also something that I've kept over from my medical career. Moving on to talking a little bit about Bordeaux in particular. Um, Bordeaux is perceived as quite a traditional wine region. I wanted to hear from you about what you think the advantages and um, challenges are of producing wine in a more traditional region. I think uh, one big advantage is that um, historically Bordeaux has been producing wine since Roman times. And that gives hundreds of years of knowing which are the good areas to plant and which are not the good areas to plant. I think perhaps uh, a wine region that is uh, new doesn't really have that history behind it. And you can see it yourself. Generally, the areas that have been planted in Bordeaux are areas where the terroir is exactly what you want, are areas that don't get hit by frost, uh, don't get hit by hail, uh, maybe have a microclimate. And this is what history has shown us over the years. So I think that's probably the, the one of the most important things about being such a traditional area. Tradition in terms of culture, I think that that is a mixed blessing. Um, the positive sides are that, again, from, from the winemaking point of view, Bordeaux has an identity. 
And over the hundreds of years, it's an identity that has been very important and has sold very well. As I'm sure you know, and you're uh, the next generation down from me, the generation of, of wine drinkers now that we need to reach out to perhaps not so interested in wines that you have to put away for 10 years before they're ready to drink. So the traditions of Bordeaux have to now really be looked at and picked to see what can we use to, to now sell to our markets overseas. And I have to say, since we've been here, Bordeaux is, is now moving. Um, when we first came, I think it was quite hard to break out of traditions. For example, when we first came, you were not allowed to put varietals on your label. So for a non-Bordeaux wine drinker who wants to buy a Sauvignon Blanc or wants to have a Cab Sav Merlot blend, they had no idea. And so you immediately eliminate a large part of your export market. But thankfully, that's changed. And there are many things now that are changing. And the new generation of, of Bordeaux winemakers has, by and large, all done vintages in Australia or New Zealand or in Napa or Argentina or Chile. And they come back to Bordeaux, um, in my view, bringing the best of the new world and using that with the best of what we've got here. And if that continues like that, then, you know, I think that Bordeaux has a great, a great future ahead of it. You mentioned earlier that your red wine and also your white wine don't see any um, new oak in 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 the maturing and, and the aging, do you think that gives them more of a, a sort of a modern style um, and is a bit more approachable to, to drinkers? We do actually use new oak, new, new oak for aging in the red wine, but just 30%. Um, and you're okay. right, we don't, we don't use new oak at all in, in the white wine. I, I think for white wine, uh, I would say probably yes, certainly for our market. We, we sell 90% export um, to the UK, well, prior to COVID, UK, the US were our biggest markets for our white wine. And yes, the consumer is very much looking for fresh, zesty white wines rather than perhaps the heavier oak style. And certainly Bordeaux now has moved away from, from the heavier oak style, style that you probably found 10 years ago. Yes, yeah, so I think in answer to your question, Oak, if used, in my view, the right way is, is a definite plus to the wines. Uh, but for the consumer who would like to drink their wine uh, with their dinner the day or the day after they've bought it, if you have lots of new oak in there, then that's a fairly full-on flavour. And whether or not that's what they're looking for, I'm not so sure. So we've talked about how Bordeaux is quite a traditional region but mm. I wanted to ask is it a friendly region are you friends with the neighboring wineries and and mm. do you all sort of get together and do tastings together host mm. each other for dinner try each other's mm. wines yeah yes I mean for us uh it's it's been an incredibly friendly region you know when my parents moved here there were hardly any foreigners at all making wine apart from obviously the the classic crew classe families um who've had the tradition over the centuries and they were welcomed they were welcomed with with open arms literally um maybe because we're welsh and maybe because this is a big rugby area and in fact the welsh dragon figures on our front gates on our winery and on our labels but 
absolutely. We, we've only been welcomed with open arms. Yes, uh, our friends are, are definitely the, the winemakers in the area. Um, in fact, Chateau du Serrance is our immediate neighbor with Caroline and Xavier, and, and we've been friends with, with that family for since we've been here. Uh, the other family we're very friendly with is the Medvilles in Cadillac, the, the river, and uh, Marie-Françoise is the godmother to Louis. So, yeah, no, for, for us, we haven't had any issues at all. Of course, having kids in the schools and growing up is always an opener, isn't it? I think if you, when you have kids, uh, immediately a whole social circle meets up. People have said to me uh, that Bordeaux is a closed society. And I've also had it said that if you're from other parts of France, as opposed to a foreigner like me, it's more difficult uh, because you can't so much be judged because you're so different. Whereas if you're French, then maybe there are things that the, the Bordelais don't open up to. I've never had that experience, but maybe maybe that's the case. So we're currently recording this podcast in June right now. Um, yeah. What is happening day to day in the vineyard and in the winery um, right now? And do you have any predictions as to how sort of this harvest is going to, to pan out, how, how things are going so far? Yeah. Well, if I was to give you the classic Bordeaux answer, I'm, I would say it's going to be an amazing harvest because every harvest is amazing when you listen to the, the Bordeaux um, PR machine. Look, this harvest has started off with difficulty because we had a very, very late frost, um, which you probably read about. And a lot of vineyards were touched by the frost. There was a catch up. So the the secondary uh, bud has come through and is producing grapes. So that's good news. Uh, we had a very wet spring and then we've had no rain at all up until just today. Actually, it's just started raining now. So it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting harvest. What what's very important is that we have to make sure, certainly in organics, because organics you don't treat systemically, and that means that in classical viticulture you put a product on the vine and it gets taken up into the vine, and so it gives protection for up to two weeks. What we use in organics are basically a sulfur spray, and that's purely prevention. So the sulfur stays on the leaf and it prevents mildew, which is the big enemy this time of year for growing. So sulfur, uh, sulfonamides are antibiotics that are even used today, um, derivatives of sulfur. So sulfur is a natural ke chemical that does prevent fungus growing. So what we have to do is we have to follow the, the weather very, very carefully. And if there's more than five millimeters of rain, we actually have to go into the vineyard and spray the leaves with sulfur so that when the rain comes and the mildew, of course, likes a damp environment, there's protection there. However, more than 20 millimeters of rain, it all gets washed off. So this time of year is spent basically just watching the weather forecast to see when you need to go in and treat. The other things that we do in the vineyard, we obviously don't use any weed killers. So in order to stop grass growing up through the vine, that in itself will bring fungal spores onto the, your 
your grape bunches and, and leaves, which we don't want. We have to use uh, a machine which uh, is a bit like a blade and it goes in and out of the, the grape vines and pulls up all the grass. So that's what's happening in the vineyard at the moment. The workers in the vineyard are doing uh, two things, apompage, which means uh, shoot plucking. So they pull off any shoots that are growing from the stem that shouldn't be there and levage or lifting. So everything is just growing so quickly at the moment and the branches grow out and are too heavy. So you literally lift them up and then pull down the trellising on the vineyards to keep them in place. So it's, it's a very, very busy month, the month of June. It really is seven days a week. In the winery, um, not a lot's happening at the moment. We've got the wines from 2020 in barrel. And there it's just basically checking that everything's okay, that the barrels might need topping up. Uh, making sure that the temperatures are okay, using air conditioning if we need to. So it's not hands-on in the winery, which is just as well because it's very hands-on in the vineyard. There definitely seem a lot of challenges every day that you have to face both uh, in, in the vineyards and in the winery. People often have a very idyllic view of owning a winery, but um, yes. it's definitely very hard work by the sounds of it. Um, but what do you find the most rewarding part of making wine? I think it's it's a very creative process and you know at the end of a vintage when your last grape is in we always have a big celebration because it really is the the whole culmination of a year's work and you've managed to pick your grapes and you've managed to produce ripe delicious grapes even though we've had frost we may get hail we may have had uh, a heat wave we may have had uh, no water but we've done it you know we've succeeded and the grapes are all in and nothing in nature now can throw at us will harm us so big party and uh, a big entrecote on the barbecue with some nice wine and then we think about making the wine but it's, it's, it really is such a satisfying feeling and any, anyone who's listening who's in agriculture I'm sure has the same the, the same sense of relief when your harvest is in because we really are at nature's mercy and a, a, a good wine is 90% of a good wine is, is, in, is in the vineyard 10% um, is in winery but the agricultural side of it or viticulture is so important. And when you bring in those great grapes, it really is a feeling that I can't describe. It's relief and you're proud and, and you've made a, hopefully, what's going to turn out to be a delicious product that gives people pleasure. I mean, what can be better than that? I think anyone listening in, Nicholas, probably feeling very inspired by your story. <laughs> I wanted um, I wanted to end asking you an interesting question. Um, mm -hmm. So you took over the winery from your parents. Do you hope mm. one day your children will take over the winery? Do you know what I hope for? That my that my kids find out what they want to do that makes them happy. I don't have any, feel any pressure. I don't feel any pressure for them to take over at all. I think if they want to do it, then they'll do it spontaneously. I think that they really have to find their own lives. I mean, my oldest two are, are living in New York at the moment. Louis in his final year of school and he's hoping to do a gap year in New Zealand. And, you know, they've got to discover themselves and, and find what, what makes them tick. And 
if they come back at some stage to to take over, brilliant. But I certainly would want them to do what they want to do first and foremost. That's great. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you so, so much. That's uh, your story and everything is so interesting. I love how you described that amazing feeling of bringing in the grapes at harvest, both relief and joy. Your stories from the vineyards have certainly made me eager to return to France as soon as I can. And I definitely need to try and get a dinner invitation at your place. That's all from us today. Thank you for tuning in to A View from a Vineyard. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. A View from the Vineyard with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines. Because life's too short for boring wine. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.